Welcome to the Rick Reed Sermon Podcast. Rick serves as the president of Heritage College and Seminary, where he has the joy of preaching God's Word and training the next generation of preachers. The sermons on this podcast are taken from Dr. Reed's preaching ministry in churches, conferences, and at chapel services at Heritage. Uh, Brother Doug said, what a joy to be at NBC on a morning like this. What a, what a joy just to be anywhere out on a morning like this, right? It is so nice to be up at NBC for some of us is like the highlight of the last few months. I don't know about you, but we felt fairly cooped up since uh, mid-March. Uh, I work at a college and seminary called Heritage. And on a Friday, I think about the March 13th, we had to clear the campus and everybody went home, and since then, it's felt way too quiet around there. Most of us have worked from home, and so just to be out, just to be with uh, other believers is a great joy, and to be up at NBC, how blessed we all are. You know, I was thinking these last few months have really taken a toll on even the stout of heart. Uh, Maybe you're a a pretty resilient person, and uh, NBC has as its mission to help train and raise up resilient families. Maybe you're pretty resilient, but these last few months have tested our resiliency, haven't they? I mean, if, if you look at what's happened during the pandemic, you would see that if, if you look kind of broad spectrum, the number of mental health issues have just skyrocketed. Uh, anxiety, um, angst, worry, Uh, Financial concerns have exploded. Many people with their businesses are very unsure of what the future holds, their own jobs. Domestic violence has sadly increased as people have been confined and cooped up and they're not able to get away. And some places where it's already been toxic and uh, it's been like, you know, the Tinder, someone set a match to it and things have been blowing up. It has been a difficult season, even for those who are resilient. So here's my question for you. What is it that allows some Christians to go through a tough time like this and still be resilient, to still do well? What is it that allows some Christians, here I'm talking about Christians, not just the general population, what allows some Christians to get hit hard but still stay hopeful, to go through withering experiences but not wither, to get beat up by life, to get beat down by life and stay buoyant. What is it that allows some Christians to do that? And you might say, well, I think uh, some of it has to do with personality. There are some people that are just naturally buoyant. They're naturally optimistic. They're naturally resilient. And I would say to you, well, that's probably some of the answer, but that's not the whole answer. There's something far deeper. I would argue biblically that what allows some Christians to stay resilient has a lot to do with their bedrock beliefs and their core convictions. The things that they believe, the things that they're convinced of in the deepest part of their hearts. I'm talking about those bedrock beliefs, those core convictions that they don't don't just consent to. I'm talking about ones they're convinced of. Like their whole heart is hanging on to these, not just at Sunday when they're at church, 
but on Mondays and on Thursdays and on Friday nights, all through the week, there are some beliefs that they hang on to. There are some convictions that have gripped their soul that those convictions, those beliefs, allow them to have an incredible resiliency. The Apostle Paul was a man like that. He had some core convictions. He had some bedrock beliefs. And those beliefs stabilized him as he lived, as you've read his life in the New Testament, he lived a life filled with pressure, filled with opposition, filled with tension. And yet he stayed strong. And those core beliefs, those bedrock beliefs that Paul had that let him be so resilient get this, we're all linked to the idea of union with Christ. Like if, if you drill down to them and you trace them back, they all come down to the theme of union with Christ. This week here at NBC in my time with you, I'm dealing with the important topic, the open secret of the Christian life. The open secret. I call it the open secret because it's open. It's right in the God's word. It's not hidden, but it's a bit of a secret because it seems many Christians have really not gotten the message. It still seems a little ethereal. It still seems a little out of reach to them. And the open secret of the Christian life can be condensed into three words, union with Christ. I'm convinced that when you understand union with Christ, that it's the key that unlocks the door to you accelerating your spiritual growth, to overcoming sin, to dealing with adversity. In fact, that's what we want to talk about today. Today, I want to talk to you about how the scriptures say that when you understand your union with Christ, it will help you be more resilient in hard times. And I imagine some of us here could use that. Some of us are still feeling like, you know, this is, NBC is a welcome respite from kind of the oppressive and uh, kind of, you know, confining quarantine that we live with. This is a welcome relief. But when we leave here, we're all going back to where we came from, and we're going to be dealing with the same issues that we were dealing with in April and May and in June. So how are you going to overcome adversity? How are you going to stay resilient? Today, I want to take you to a passage that shows you how your union with Christ, when you understand your union in Christ, embrace it. It will help you become a more resilient person. Today, I want to talk to you about how union with Christ, the open secret of of the Christian life, helps you overcome adversity. And I want to do that by looking back at the passage that we were in yesterday, Romans chapter 8. So can I invite you to turn to Romans chapter 8? Today we're going to be in the last part of the chapter. Yesterday we were in more the first part in the middle. Today I want to talk to you about the open secret of dealing with adversity. And if you're a person who says, I could use a little more resiliency. I could use a little more stability. I could use a little more strength as I have to weather this pandemic. Then I think these verses are going to be a great encouragement to you as they have been to me. Let me pray for us, and then we'll look at verses 31 through 39 of Romans chapter 8. Father, we've already prayed and given you praise for a glorious morning. And for NBC, a place where we can come and breathe deep, a place where we can come and, and get refreshed. And yet, Lord, we all know that we don't live here. This is not our life for the next months for most of us. We're going back to our towns. We're going back to our homes. We're going back to our workplaces. 
and we will be met by challenges and obstacles that threaten to overwhelm our resiliency and beat us down. And I'm asking today that you will open the scriptures by your Holy Spirit to our hearts so that we understand how our union with Christ, your son, is the way we can find beliefs that stabilize us and strengthen us in the midst of a pandemic and whatever else life brings. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to read for you verses 31 through 39 of Romans chapter 8. Follow along as I do. These are some, if, if, uh, if you have favorite verses, I don't know if that's okay because all scripture is inspired by God and useful. But if you have favorites, these would probably make the short list of many of our favorite verses, right? Let, let me read them for you. I'm reading from uh, Romans 8, 31. I'm in the ESV translation. It says this. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is, the right, who is at the right hand of God and who, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure, or some translations say, I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor rulers, neither things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Did you notice the last few words in verse 39? In Christ Jesus our Lord. That's Paul's shorthand for in union with Christ Jesus our Lord. Whenever you see the little phrase in Christ, in Christ Jesus, in him, it's Paul's shorthand for in union with Christ. Okay? Now what's interesting to me is that this chapter ends just like it begins. It begins with talking about our union with Christ. If you go back to verse 1, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are what? In Christ Jesus. So Paul bookends chapter 8 by saying, in Christ Jesus, in Christ Jesus. And everything that he says between verse 1 and verse 39 flows out of being in Christ Jesus, in union with Christ. You see, when you become a Christian, when you come to the place where you know you need a Savior and you understand that Jesus is the Savior you need, you need forgiveness, you need new life, you need help, and you come to him by faith and you pour out your heart and you say, Lord Jesus, I believe in you. I believe you died for my sin and rose from the grave. I trust in you. I give you my life. When you do that, God links your life to Jesus' life. And you live, whether you know it or not, whether you feel it or not, you live in union with Christ. 
His story now is wedded to your story. That's why we saw yesterday his death is seen as your death. His resurrection is seen as your resurrection. God sees you in Christ, which we saw yesterday is the way you overcome sin. He gives you his spirit who lives inside of you, and his spirit empowers you to deal with sin in union with Christ. Today, in our verses, verses 31 to 39, we're going to see how your union with Christ gives you bedrock beliefs and core convictions that will stabilize you in hard times. In fact, here's kind of the flow of verses 31 to 39. In those verses, in those nine verses in chapter 8, Paul gives you seven questions. There are seven questions between verse 31 and 39. And those seven questions make three points. They give you three truths that you can hang on to that will stabilize you. Three truths that when you come to believe these because you're united to Christ, these truths will help you overcome adversity, whether we're talking about the pandemic or whether we're talking about any other kind of adversity. So what I want to do in our time this morning is walk you through verses 31 to 39, and I want to show you these three truths that are highlighted by these seven questions. If you look with me at verse 31, you'll see that the very first question is kind of the setup question. And then the next, six, the next six questions, there's two for each of the three points. There's two for each of the three statements. So the first question, kind of the setup question in verse 31 says this, what then shall we say to these things? So Paul is saying, so what's the point of all this? How should we respond to this? And then he begins to give you what he hangs on to as bedrock beliefs and core convictions. And I want to give them to you. There'll be three of them. And if you will take these into your heart and like Paul, hang on to them because you are united with Christ. These are true for you. They'll stabilize you to a greater degree. You wrestle with some mental health challenges. These are part of what will stabilize you. You're struggling with some anxiety, with, with some worries about financial concerns that you're going to have. These will be part of a bedrock that helps stabilize you. These will help you become more resilient. So let me walk you through the three truths that come out of these, these nine verses. Here's the first one. It shows up in verses 31, 32. And I would put it this way. What we're going to see, what we can hang on to first is this one. God, get this, God will be for us no matter who is against us. That's what Paul's going to, he's going to get at by asking a couple of questions. He's going to say, listen, here's what you can hang on to. God will be for us no matter who's against us. God, if you're in Christ, if you're united to him, God will be for you no matter who is against you. Let me show you how he, how he makes that point. Look with me at verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Now, when Paul says that, when he said, if God is for us, who can be against us? He's not meaning that nobody will ever be against us. I know that because in verse 35, he gives a whole list of things that come against us. Persecution, sword, danger. He says, I know people are out to, there's, there's all kinds of things that are out to get us. But his point when he says, if God is for us, who can be against us is this. He's saying, if God is for us, then does it really matter who's against us? Like, if you have God on your side, it doesn't really matter who's not on your side. If God is pulling for you, 
It doesn't matter who's pulling against you. That's his point. If God is for us, who can be against us? So God will be for us no matter who's against us. Now, you may hear that and you say, well, that, that's actually very encouraging to me, but there's a little word in that question that troubles me. Did you notice it? If, right? Like that's what it says in verse 31. If God is for us, who will be against us? And you go, I know if God is for me, then I'm in good shape. But sometimes I wonder, is God for me? And after all, Paul says, if God is for us. So how do I know if God is really for me? Sometimes when I look out at the landscape of my life, I don't see a lot of evidence that God is for me. In fact, I see like maybe God has left me. And so I wonder sometimes, is he still for me? I know he's for some people, but is he for me? Well, Paul answers that question with a question because he looks and look what he says next in verse 32. If you wonder, is God for you? Look what he says in verse 32. He asks another question. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So Paul says, are you concerned that God may not be for you? Let me ask you another question. If God gave you Jesus, his own son, is he going to hold back anything else? He's arguing from the greater to the lesser, right? In logic or rhetoric, we can talk about the argument of the greater to the lesser. And the idea is, if the greater is true, then the lesser is true. If he gave you Jesus, which is giving you the very best that he has, it's giving you himself, then do you really wonder if he's for you? Like, he's already given you the best that he has. So you say, well, is God for me? Yes, he gave you Jesus. Maybe I could put it this way. The argument of the greater to the lesser is this. Uh, we have some friends who have a cottage up here at NBC. And uh, one, one summer, we, we, uh, they graciously let us use their cottage for a week. So we come in and we move in the cottage. And imagine the first day I was in the cottage, a uh, beautiful cottage. I picked up the phone and I called my friend and I said, um, do, you, do you mind if we use the toaster? I'm sure they would have said, yeah, no, no, go ahead. Make yourself at home. Use the toaster. And imagine the next day I called back and I said, uh, you know, I know we, you said we could use the toaster. I was wondering, would you really be okay if we use some of the plates and the forks and the knives? They'd say, yeah, yeah, you can use those too. And then the next day I called back and say, would you mind if we sat in the furniture on the patio? At some point he's going to go, look, look, I, I gave you the cottage for the week. And that means everything in the cottage, make yourself at home, right? The greater to the lesser. I gave you the cottage, you can use the toaster. And Paul is saying this, God gave you Jesus. So is he really going to hold back on anything else? He already gave you the very best that he has because he gave you himself. And that's how you can know that God is for you, no matter who's against you. This spring, a song came out that kind of swept the world. Maybe you saw one of those montages where people are singing in the little squares. And it came out and it was called The Blessing. Remember seeing that? It's a, it's a beautiful song. And it's the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you. And there's one part of the song where over and over the singer sang this. He is for you. He is for you. He is for you. He is for you. And I'm thinking, okay, I think we got the point. 
And they're probably thinking, no, I don't think you got the point. So let's sing it again. He is for you. Because instinctively, we doubt that at times. Life takes a little bit of a hard turn. We think, well, maybe God's not for me anymore. Paul says, no, no, you got to hang on to this bedrock belief. You got to come back to this core conviction. If he didn't spare his own son for you, but he gave you his son, Jesus, how will he not with him also graciously give you all things? So what's the first bedrock belief, the first core conviction that will help you get stability, be resilient? It's this, God will be for us no matter who's against us. You hear that and you say, well, I love that. I love that, but, but I got a question. What happens? What happens if God is for me right now, but I mess up so much that he becomes disillusioned with me? He becomes disappointed with me. And at some point he says, enough. I've been for you a long time, but you've crossed the line. You've fallen down too many times. That's it. Could ever God come to a point where he's just, he's sick and tired of me, the way I get sick and tired of myself? Could he ever turn against me at some point? Well, that leads you to the second bedrock belief, the second core conviction that Paul wants you to know. It's in verses 33 and 34. Two more questions. I would put the bedrock belief this way. If the first one is this, God will be for us no matter who's against us. Here's the second one. God will acquit us no matter who accuses us. God will acquit us no matter who accuses us. God will acquit you. If you're in Christ, if you're united to Christ, God will acquit you no matter who accuses you. You say, where do you get that? Well, look at verse 33. Here's the next question he asks. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Now, let me stop there. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? God's elect refers to those God has chosen, those, those whom God has saved. If you've trusted in Christ, you're one of his elect, okay? And Paul asks this question, who will bring any charge against them? In other words, who will come before God and say, I have something against this person? Put your name there. I have something against Rick. I have something, I have a charge to bring against David. I have a charge to bring against Marianne. Who, put your name there. Who's gonna do that? Who's gonna bring a charge before God against you? And you say, well, there's a whole lot of people that would do that. There's a bunch of people that would bring charges against me. You probably have some people that are very close to you that would be happy to step up and make some charges against you before God. They'd be happy to step up and say, I am here to testify against and put your name there. Could be people in your own family. You may have siblings or parents or children that would stand up and say, let me tell you how they messed up. I got evidence here. I'll tell you what, Satan will be there bringing charges against you. Revelation 12.10 calls Satan the accuser of the brethren who accuses them day and night before God. Satan is most happy to step before God if God allows him to, like he did with Job. And Satan is most happy to call your name and say, let me tell you, I got a laundry list of things that this person has done wrong. Satan can bring accusations against you. And if your own heart is tender, your own heart will bring accusations against you, won't it? 1 John 3.20 says, if our hearts condemn us, 
And if you're a sensitive Christian, you know there are times when you yourself are the prosecuting attorney against yourself. You have charges to bring against you. You will say, I've messed up here. I've fallen short here. I've sinned here. And in every case, those who bring charges against you will be at least partially right. In many cases, they will have compelling evidence on their side. But catch this they won't have God on their side. Like they're bringing accusations, they got evidence on their side, but they won't have God on their side. You say, how do you know that? Look back at the text. Verse 33, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Look at what comes next. It is God who justifies who is it that condemns. In other words, the idea is this. They come before God and they say, I have charges to lay. Here's a, they've sinned, they've fallen short, they've messed up in all these ways. And Paul says, but God steps up and says they're justified. It's a legal word, right? It's a courtroom word. It's like God pounds the gavel and says acquitted. God justifies. So there are, are there people that will accuse you? You say, yeah, there's a whole bunch, including me. Paul says, well, let me tell you who will acquit you. God, who just, God will justify. Now, somebody's going to say, wait a second, God, that's not fair. How can you just... How can you justify somebody who did things that are unjustifiable? How can you acquit somebody who did things that are awful? Well, Paul goes on to explain, why can God justify you when you have rightfully been accused? Look what comes next. I'm still in verse 33. It is God who justifies, now verse 34, who is to condemn Christ Jesus, the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So here's what Paul says next. God justifies you. And how can he do that? It's because of what Jesus did for you. That's why God can justify you. Because that's what he says in verse 34. Christ Jesus is the one who died. God justifies you. Because remember, when you trust in Christ, you are in union with Christ. And God says, you know, Jesus died, and that person is in union with Christ. So Jesus died for those sins. They died. He counts Christ's death as your death. Jesus died for you. He took all of your sins and took them on himself because you united yourself with him by faith. He died for you. Christ Jesus died. I love how Martin Luther puts this. Martin Luther talks about how Jesus took our sins to the cross. Listen, Martin Luther in his very colorful way says this. I'm quoting him. Our most merciful father sent his only son into the world and laid upon him the sins of all men saying, be thou Peter the denier, be Paul the persecutor, David the adulterer, that sinner which did eat the apple in paradise, that thief which hanged upon the cross, be thou the person that hath committed the sins of all men, and therefore see that thou pay and satisfy for them. See what Luther's saying? It's like when Jesus was on the cross, the Father is saying, be Peter, the denier. Be Paul, the blasphemer. And then he puts your name there. Be Rick, for all his sins. Be Sandra for all her sins. Because when you link your life to Christ, when you are in union with him, suddenly Jesus' death becomes your death. 
So Christ died for our sins, but that's not all verse 34 says. He not only died for our sins, look what comes next. He was raised. His, his resurrection showed that God accepted his sacrifice. He was victorious. And then look what else there's, verse 34 says. He's at the right hand of God and is interceding for us. Here's the picture. The accuser comes before God the Father and says, I have an accusation against so-and-so. Put your name there. And the accusation is made. And let's say in this case, the accusation is true. It's not a lie. You actually did sin. You actually did fall there. It says Jesus is at the right hand of the Father interceding for us. It's like Jesus steps up and says, Father, it's true. They did that. It's true. But I died for that. And on the basis of my death, I ask you to justify, acquit this one who is in union with me. See, Paul knows that. And he says, that's why we can say with confidence, that's why I hang on to this bedrock belief. And the belief is simply this. God will acquit us when others accuse us. That's an amazing thing. And it's all because you're united to Christ. Back when I was in high school, I went to a conference and the uh, speaker gave a little circle, a little illustrated circle that I have used over and over whenever I am starting to feel condemned, especially by Satan. You know what it's like? You sin, you tell God that you're sorry, you confess that sin, but Satan doesn't want to let it go. So he keeps coming back and bringing it up, right? Bring it up. How could you? Ah, what do you think? Some great Christian you are. And there was a little circle, a little set of movements, theological truths that I learned when I was in high school that have still been helpful to me today. Let me show you. It's kind of like four little steps. The first step is this. When Satan accuses you and your heart condemns you over something you've confessed, the first thing you do is instead of trying to block it out, you agree with it. So Satan accuses you of a sin you committed. Instead of trying to block it out, you say, you know what? That is true. I did that. You don't dodge it. You don't deny it. You acknowledge that. But then the second thing, you quickly go to the second thing was, and because I did that, Jesus had to die. And you remind yourself that Christ had to die for that sin and the sins of all others. And then the third step is this. You start off, I did that. Because I did that, Christ had to die. Third step is this. And because Christ died, I am forgiven. So you remind yourself of the truth. I did that. Christ had to die. Because he died, I'm forgiven. And here's the fourth step. And because I'm forgiven, I want to live for him. I want to live for him with my whole life. And the speaker said this. If you will do that, say if, it's, if the accusation is from Satan, he's going to back off. Because he doesn't want you to do this little circle that ends up with you saying, I want to live for Jesus. He just wants you to be condemned. Here's, here's the powerful thing, brothers and sisters. When you understand this truth, it will not make you feel like you're going to go out and live however you want. Some people say, well, if you, if you know that God's going to acquit you, then just go out and sin big. Like, just sin it up. And then, you know, no, you're going to be fine. And I'd say, you don't understand grace at all. Because when you understand what Jesus did 
so you could be acquitted, the last thing you want to do is to go and wound his heart by sending it up. It actually has a, an, a, the exact opposite. When you understand this, you, you're going to say, if you did that for me, you died my death, you get my life. I want to live for you. So when accusations come our way, we don't have to be just defeated by them. By the way, as a little aside, I would say this. Some Christians take this in a way that the Bible actually would not agree with. And that is, I don't have to listen to anybody what they say against me because I'm fine with Jesus. No, 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 no. Sometimes the Proverbs, the book of Proverbs says that if you're going to be wise, you have to accept rebuke. And often when people accuse us, there's a reason and there is some, at least some truth in it. A wise person will both go to the cross for forgiveness, but they'll also say to the Lord, Lord, if there's some things I've messed up with, help me to change. I want to grow. They'll be self-reflective, just not self-flagellating because they're hanging on to a bedrock truth. First one was this, God will be for us when no matter who's against us. Second one, God will acquit us no matter who accuses us. And that brings us to the third and final bedrock truth. It comes out in verses 35 to 39. Two more questions. Here's the truth. The third one is simply this. God will love us no matter what attacks us. Paul says, here's what I hang on to. Like I get attacked a lot, Paul would say. I get a lot of things going against me, but I'm hanging on to this. God will still love me no matter what attacks me. Look how he, he draws this out. He asks another question, verse 35. We're down to verse 35 now. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? We could add, or pandemic, right? Like, like Paul goes through this list. Which of these things can pull us away from the love of Christ? And he gives a list. Most of those, if you and I went through that, we would start to think, wow, does God really love me? I have no food. Does God really love me? I have no clothes. Does God really love me? I've got people that are hunting me down. Paul says, are any of those things strong enough to separate you from the love of Christ? And then he goes on in verse 36 to say this, as it is written for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. He quotes from Psalm 44. And essentially what he says is, it's always been this way for the people of God. Even back in Old Testament times, the psalmist knew they're like, we're like sheep and people are after us to kill us. It's been that way from ages and it's that way today. We're still being in trouble. Does that mean that God has stopped loving us? Look at verse 37. No, no, it doesn't mean that God has stopped loving us. In all these things, all what things? Well, the persecution, the famine, the nakedness, the danger, the pandemic. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Now, just sit with that a minute. Paul says something that's stunning. In all of these things, all these horrible things, we're more than conquerors. And we want to say, Paul, how can you say that? What do you mean you're more than conquerors? You're getting beat up in life. You're getting beat down. How are you more than conquerors? It seems like that's, it doesn't compute. It doesn't seem like you're winning, Paul. It seems like you're getting clobbered. When we first moved to Ottawa about 20 years ago, we came from California, and we moved to Ottawa, and um, I got to go see my first junior ice hockey game, the 67s is the Ottawa team. 
And uh, that year, what, there was a new team in the league called the Mississauga Ice Dogs, actually owned by Don Cherry at that point. And the Ice Dogs were kind of the entry-level team, and they weren't very good. We had seats right behind one of the uh, goals, goalposts there, the nets. And in the first period, Ottawa scored nine goals. So we got nine times we got to see the puck go into the net right in front of us. And after a while, they changed goalies, and it didn't help. And by the end of the second period, it was like 13 or 14 to nothing. Can you imagine the coach talking to the ice dogs between intermission two and three? Can you, can you imagine the coach getting up and saying to his players, look, guys, look, guys, we have the 67s right where we want them. Like another 12, 13 goals, and we're right back into this thing. He's not going to be saying that. He's getting clobbered. And it's like Paul is getting clobbered. He's getting hit by all these things, and he stands up and says, we're more than conquerors. You wonder if Paul was playing hockey without a helmet for a while. I don't know. Like, what, what's going on there, Paul? Well, the last little words in verse 37 tells you how Paul can say we're more than conquerors. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Who's that talking about? Talking about Jesus. We're conquerors through him who loved us. It's interesting. He uses the word love, not in the present tense. You'd think he'd say through him who loves us, but he doesn't. He uses it in the Greek. It's an heiress, and it seems to look backwards. Through him who loved us, probably thinking back to the cross and saying, if you ever doubt the love of Christ, if you ever doubt that you're winning, look back to the cross. Because at the cross, Jesus was the Lamb of God who, like verse 36 says, was a sheep to be slaughtered. You remember how Isaiah said he was led like a lamb to the slaughter, like a sheep before his shears is silent so he didn't open his mouth? Jesus looked like he lost. He went to the cross as a sheep. He was crucified. But you and I know that that was his victory. It was through the cross that Jesus defeated all, all the opponents, all the sins of the world. And Paul says, remember, you're in Christ. You're united with Christ. And just like his death, when, he, when it seemed at the lowest, he was conquering, Paul says, that's what's true of us, because we're in Christ. In fact, he ends with two of the most powerful verses in all the New Testament, I think, verse 38 and 39. For I am sure, I am convinced, that neither death nor life Neither death nor life, neither death from COVID, nor death from cancer, nor death from heart disease, whatever you want to put, neither death nor life, anything life can throw at us, neither death nor life, look what comes next, neither angels or rulers, some translations say angels or demons, Satan is an angel, fallen angel, so nothing that Satan can do, nothing that the demons can do, nothing that the angels can do. Neither death nor life, nor angels or demons, nor things present, nor things to come. You say, well, it's kind of bad now, and it may be worse in the future. Paul says, yeah, nothing in the present, nothing in the future. Nor any powers is the next thing he says at the end of verse 38. Powers. Those can be human powers, government. Those could be supernatural powers, he says, not them either. Verse 39, neither height nor depth, neither the top experiences or the bottom, nor anything else in all of creation, anything else. By the way, does that include you yourself? Are you part of creation? 
You say, well, yeah, I guess I am. He says, nothing else in all of creation, what? Will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. See what he's saying? If you're in union with Christ, like nothing can pull you away from that. And when life throws its very worst at you, when death knocks at your doorstep, you can hang on to things that give you a resiliency that's bigger than your personality or natural buoyancy. You can hang on to the fact with all your soul that God will be for us no matter who's against us and that God will acquit us no matter who accuses us and that God will still love us no matter what attacks us. And when you hang on to that, my brothers and sisters, when you understand that because you're in Christ, all these things are true for you, it'll give you a strength of character and a resiliency that otherwise you will never have. And you will be able to praise him and hope in him even in the storms of life, even in a pandemic. I want to close by having you watch a video. When we had to uh, cancel the rest of classes, live classes, we still did online classes in this fall. We're having some on campus and some on live. But when we had to do that last spring, our music students had a final project they were supposed to do together, but they weren't together. They were all in their homes. So they recorded a song And they mixed it down. It's a beautiful song. And it's called Praise You in the Storm. And I want you to just hear it. And just let the truth of it come over. That if you are in Christ, you can praise him in the storm. And by the way, if you're here today and you're not in Christ, if you have never given your life to Jesus and had your life linked to him, oh, I would say to you, what are you waiting for? Like, why would you not... So do that today in simple faith. Cry out to him. Say, dear Lord, I want the life of Jesus. I believe he died for me and rose for me. I give you my life. I receive your life. Do that today because then, then these bedrock beliefs, these core convictions can be yours and you can praise him in the storm. You watch this and pray as you do and then Doug will come and close us. For more information on Heritage College and Seminary, visit the school's website at discoverheritage.ca. To stay connected with the Reeds, visit their website at rickandlindareed.com.